Now let us turn to our sermon passage for this morning, which is found in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, through the end of the chapter. Hear now God's holy word, which will not return to him void. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Amen. Please be seated. Salvation is really like a man coming to God with empty hands, with nothing to offer, nothing to give, simply begging for God's grace to him. But even if men acknowledge that that is the proper view of salvation, that is a proper analogy to salvation, yet pride is so insidious It is so corrupting, it is so subtle, it is so powerful that men will still insist that, well, at least I knew where to go for salvation. Or at least I put out my hands for salvation. I mean, how many people have not even done that? And so in some way during this process, in some part, men are prone to take credit for their salvation to some degree, in some little way. But here the Apostle Paul obliterates any such view of salvation. There is no boasting. It is all excluded. And yet it is true that in so many different views of salvation, boasting is included. Consider, for example, the doctrine of the Roman Catholics. On the one hand, they say very good things about grace, things we would agree with, even things that we would say, yes, they they understand grace, it seems. For example, in their catechism, they say this, With regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from him, our creator. And we would look at that and say, well, yes, that is true. We have received everything from our creator. There is no merit for man. We agree then that salvation is by grace and grace alone, right? But Rome has an uncanny ability to speak out of both sides of its mouth and hold to contradictions with great confidence and even with infallibility. This is what they said then at the Council of Trent. 
If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Rome says, well, yes, it is grace, but you have to cooperate with it. In fact, you have to prepare your own will to receive this grace. It is your own work of preparation. You must prepare yourself. Trent goes on to say, If anyone saith that the good works of one that is justified are in such manner the gifts of God as that they are not also the good merits of him that is justified, or that... Uh, the said justified by the good works which he performs through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit increase of grace, let him be anathema. In other words, if you believe that salvation is all of grace to such a degree that man deserves no credit, you are cursed under Roman Catholic doctrine. But it is not just Roman Catholicism that holds to view of salvation that applauds man. It is also Arminianism, isn't it? Those who are Arminian would say, very similar to Rome, that if you are to receive salvation, it has to be a movement in your own will. You have to work something up. You have to do something in order to receive the grace of God. You have to cooperate with the grace of God. What is the difference between one who has received Christ and one who has not? The one who has received Christ, according to Arminianism, is the one who has moved his own will. What is the difference then? Well, one is better than the other because one has done something that the other has not done. It is only then Reformed theology that understands what the Apostle Paul is saying here about No boasting. So what then? Pride is so insidious that we might say, yes, I understand the true doctrine of the Bible. And is that to your credit at all? Is that your doing? Or is that of pure grace alone? So that we who understand there is no boasting ought to be humbled to the dust for all the good things that God has given to us and not allow pride to then twist it so that we would say, look at how many advantages I have. Look at what I know. Look at what I have done. Do you mean all by grace so that boasting is excluded? Let us be warned then as we consider this passage that we do not in any way boast or have any inkling whatsoever that we are saved by anything but grace so that boasting is excluded. The Apostle Paul, as he goes through the doctrine of grace and salvation by grace alone through faith alone, now turns as he anticipates three different questions that will arise from that gospel, and he responds to those questions and answers them in turn. We begin then in verses 27 through 28 with the question, where is boasting? And then in verses 29 through 30, whose God is he? 
And then verse 31, do we make void the law? He asks these questions, anticipating that these will be what other people are wondering, and then he answers them here in our passage. We begin then, where is boasting? If we are truly, as Paul has exposed us to be, such vile sinners before the face of God that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and if we desperately need the righteousness of God alone to cover us, then where is boasting? The Apostle Paul says it is excluded. It is entirely cut out. There is no room for it. Now, of course, he doesn't mean boasting in the Lord, for we are necessitated to boast in the Lord by the doctrine of the gospel of grace. We are compelled by that grace to boast in the Lord and what he's done for us, his condescension towards us, his love outpoured upon us, his pure righteousness covering us, his atoning death on the cross out of love for us. We boast in the Lord. We glory in him. We honor him for what he has done for us. This gospel of grace necessitates that we boast in the Lord, but only in the Lord and in no other, and in nothing else. It is only boasting in the Lord. All other boasting is excluded. And it is that all other boasting that the Apostle Paul has in view here. It is the boasting of man in himself, in his works, in his accomplishments, The Apostle Paul says, where does that leave such boasting? It is entirely excluded. And why? By what law? The law of works? No, if the law of works were the way to be justified, if we were following the law of works that said, do this and live, if you can obey this law perfectly, then you'll be justified. If you can do this, then you'll be declared righteous before God. If we were following that law then we could and we should and we must boast. If we have contributed something to salvation, then we can boast in it as something we have done, even if it is small, even if it is a little bit. To that degree, we can boast. But the Apostle Paul says, no, it is not excluded by the law of works because that law doesn't work. That law is not attainable. We cannot, through that law, be justified. And therefore, he says, no, it is excluded by the law of faith. Faith is such that it excludes all boasting. Why? Because faith doesn't look to itself, but to another for salvation. A faith doesn't say, look what I have done, but it says, look what he has done. Faith is something that does not ground itself in me, but in Jesus. Consider how various commentators have put it as they speak of this faith and how it is diverting from us to God. Matthew Henry explains, God will have the great work of the justification and salvation of sinners carried on from first to last in such a way as to exclude boasting that no flesh may glory in his presence. 
Now, if justification were by the works of the law, boasting would not be excluded. If we were saved by our own works, we might put the crown upon our own heads. But the law of faith, that is, the way of justification by faith, doth forever exclude boasting, for faith is a depending, self-emptying, self-denying grace, and casts every crown before the throne. Therefore it is most for God's glory that thus we should be justified. Martin Luther puts it this way, The people of the law gives this reply to the law and to God as he speaks in the law. I have done what thou hast commanded. What thou hast ordered is accomplished. But the people of faith say, I cannot do it, and I have not done it. But give thou what thou commandest. John Murray finishes by saying, Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith looks to what God does. Works have respect to what we do. Faith leaves no room for self-congratulation, for boasting in oneself, because it entirely looks to another and not to itself for salvation. The boastful man says, at least I knew where to look for salvation. Faith says, yes, because by God's grace your eyes were opened and your stiff neck was bent heavenward. Those who are living by self-righteous works of the law say, at least I held out my empty hands to God. And faith says, yes, the hands that God by grace gave us. He, by the power of his Holy Spirit, caused us to reach out to him. Those who are proud and boast in themselves say, At least I came. How many have not come to the Lord? Faith says we came by the efficacious draw of the Lord, by the efficacious change of our heart, by the Spirit of God impelling us and driving us to Christ. We came by the work of God. There is no room for boasting if faith is the means for justification, because faith looks to another, not to itself. And therefore, boasting is excluded. And we conclude that salvation, that justification, is by grace alone, through faith alone. Notice what Paul says there in verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This is precisely where Roman Catholicism and Arminianism commit their fatal and damnable error. I say that advisedly. It is an error that solely the life-giving waters of God to such a degree that it makes them deadly. It is an error that takes the pure, pristine, cool, crisp water of life and poisons it instead of it becoming life-giving. They've turned it into a, a deadly potion. It is what some would call the damnable and the damnable addition. 
Here is the grace of God. It is pure. It is pristine. It is perfect. It needs no addition. And here is man saying, yes, but also works. We're saved by faith and grace alone in Christ, but also works. Also works, which ruins salvation and makes the grace of God deadly instead of life-giving. A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Well, then what else is there? You have man's deeds. You have faith. These are contrary to each other. These are the opposite of one another. What else is there? If there is no deed, nothing I can do, no credit I can take, then there is nothing but faith as the instrument to justify us. If we trust in Jesus to save us, not our own works, then we must trust in Jesus alone and nothing else to save us. We must trust in Jesus alone and we must believe in him for salvation. Salvation is by faith alone. Now this is how Martin Luther translated this verse. He said, faith alone. And it caused great agitation amongst the Roman Catholics at the time, they said Luther was mistranslating this and so perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not faith alone, but it is. Because if there are no works, then it must be faith only, faith alone. What else is there except works? And if it is not by works, then it must be by faith alone. Charles Hodge puts it this way, from the nature of the case, if justification is by faith, it must be by faith alone. Luther's version, therefore, align durch den Glauben, that is, alone through belief, is fully justified by the context. The Romanists indeed made a great outcry against that version as a gross perversion of Scripture, although Catholic translators before the time of Luther had given the same translation. So in the Nuremberg Bible, 1483, they, they wrote, Glauben, that is, only through the faith. In the Italian Bibles of Geneva, 1476, and Venice, 1538, per sola fide, only through faith. The fathers also often use the expression, man is justified by faith alone. So that Erasmus, who is no small Roman Catholic in his own right, said essentially that it was Luther who was listening with reverence to the Church Fathers, not Roman Catholicism on this point. In other words, what we're saying is this. This has always been what the Bible has taught. This has always been what the church has affirmed. The one who has perverted the gospel is not the Protestant camp, but those Roman Catholics who turn against their own historians, their own theologians, and say, no, it cannot be that. Why? Because then I cannot boast. I have no right to boast in my own salvation. And that simply will not do. But boasting is excluded. There is none. There is no room for boasting. There is simply nothing for us 
to boast about in ourselves. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have no right to boast about anything related to ourselves. If we boast, let us boast in the Lord. That is the first question the Apostle Paul answers here for us. The second is in verses 29 through 30, where he asks this question, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It might seem like a strange question to ask at this juncture. Is he the God of the Jews only? Why would he ask this question at this point? But it is because, as we have seen, the Jews fancy that they had God all to themselves. Sure, the occasional Gentile could join with them and worship their God and and so forth, be a convert to their religion, but he is their God, no one else's, and we like it that way. That was the sort of attitude that prevailed at the time. For that made the Jews to be special to the exclusion of others, Perhaps even God recognized how special they were, which is why he chose them. And certainly after he chose them, they proved themselves to be better than other people, right? It is the same as we read in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? That is the question the Jews would ask. They thought they were. And therefore God had saved them and become their God because they were better and deserving of it. But, says the Apostle Paul, salvation is not by the law of works, but by faith. And that faith God grants graciously to whomsoever he will. And therefore there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The Jews were never meant smugly than to hoard God as their own to the exclusion of others and feel superior to the world because they had God and they were proven worthy of it. Rather, God's people are always to be set on a hill as a light that would shine forth the grace of God to this dark world dying in its sins. Otherwise, what hope is there for the world? Is there another God? from which they can obtain salvation? No, there is but one God. And therefore, salvation is in Him alone, and He would have the entire world, His creation, to have this gospel truth of salvation. He is not a God of a small heart. He is not a God of one particular small, narrow nation. He is a God of the world he has made. He has made it, he is over it, and he offers salvation to it. Here again is how Matthew Henry speaks of this generosity and this love of God. Can it be imagined that a God of infinite love and mercy should limit and confine his favors to that little people of the Jews, leaving all the rest of the children of men in a condition eternally desperate? 
This would by no means agree with the idea we have of the divine goodness, where his tender mercies are over all his works. Therefore it is one God of grace that justifies the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith that is both in one and the same manner. The goodness of God goes to the world he has made. It is not to be hoarded up by his people as if we can smugly think we are more special, we are special and because God is our God. It is the opposite. So let us examine ourselves in light of this. Are we those who recognize the broadness of the love of God such that we would, with confidence, knowing his love extends to the world, with confidence speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and desire to share him with others? Or are we quite content to have him to ourselves and to feel, well, we are much better than others because of it? That is the question the Apostle Paul asks, and Part of the answer is that there is one God and therefore one faith. Verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, there is one God, he justifies the uncircumcised and the circumcised in exactly the same way, faith. There's no difference. But wait, there does seem to be a difference in the verse, doesn't there? You will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Well, that, that's a different. Those are different words, right? They are different words, but they mean exactly the same thing. It is the same in English as it is in, in Greek. They are the same words. They mean the same things. They're speaking of the same instrument or means. So, for example, if I heard someone say, I aced the test by studying. And then he told someone else, I aced the test through studying. They wouldn't say, well, you, just, you changed your statement there. I would say it's the same thing. Well, it's the same thing here too, but why then does the Apostle Paul, when he's declaring there is no difference between these two groups, then he uses one term for one group, another term for the other group. Why does he do that? If he is intending to say they're exactly the same. I think Calvin hits, hits it rightly when he says, there is something ironical in the words, as though he said, If any wishes to have a difference made between the Gentile and the Jew, let him take this, that the one obtains righteousness by faith and the other through faith. It is almost as if he is saying, you want there to be a difference? Okay, here's the difference. One's justified by faith, the other through faith. Happy now? It's the same. There is no difference. And if you want to make some difference then use these words that mean the same exact thing if it makes you happy. There is no difference. We are all justified by means of or through the instrument of faith alone, which looks not to itself and therefore cannot boast in itself, but looks to the Lord and therefore boasts in the Lord alone.
Well, there's a third question that arises in verse 31 that the Apostle Paul brings up. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. If salvation is by the law of faith, not the law of works, does that not make the law void and useless? Clearly, he's speaking of the law that brings demands and says, do this and live and declares, here are the requirements of God and men try to use that law to save themselves. Clearly, he's speaking of that law of demands upon men. And he's saying if that law doesn't save, if it's not efficacious to salvation, is it now useless? That's the charge that's always brought against Christians. It's often entitled antinomianism. If you're saved by grace alone, and you don't do anything, you simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that He gives you, and then you're freed from the condemnation of the law, and once saved, always saved, then the law is meaningless, isn't it? I mean, it has no power, it has no bite, it's nothing. You can go and live as outrageously as you like, and there's no consequence. You can sin with impunity. Isn't that true? The law now is void. It is something even the Lord Jesus responded to in Matthew 5, 17, when he declared, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's answering the same charge. Is the law void? No, it's not void, he says. I didn't come to void it. I came to establish it, as the Apostle Paul will say in a moment. This charge that the law is void surely comes from those who have never tasted grace. I cannot imagine someone who has tasted grace making this charge against the gospel. For those who have tasted grace say whatever the Lord does and says is precious to us. We hang upon his every word, even the law. We delight to know what he reveals to us. We love him. We want to know him. We want to know his will. We love him in his word. Those who have tasted grace find it abhorrent that any part of his word would be declared useless. Surely only those who have never tasted grace make this argument against grace. On the contrary, not voiding the law, it establishes the law. Now, there are a variety of uses for the law, of course. In Romans 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul will especially demonstrate that the law is intended as a rule for life, for us to walk in it. But when he simply drops this statement here, we should search for what he means within the immediate context of it. And he has given us one very clear use of the law in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. He's saying the law's purpose, one of its uses, is to expose our sin. That we would see and understand, I can't save myself. Look at all this sin the law exposes so that we would be driven outside of ourselves to Christ for salvation, to His righteousness alone. The law is established in its right use when we understand God's grace. God saves 
by undeserved merit towards us, his merit upon us. He saves by undeserved favor lavished on us. We know this because we understand the law does not save but drives us to Christ instead. Unless we understand the true nature of salvation, we could never understand the true nature of the law. The law drives us to Christ, and therefore we establish the law and its true purpose when we believe in the gospel of grace. And so, brethren, let us not imagine that the law shows us how we in any way whatsoever merit righteousness before God. For if we believe that, then we would have cause to boast. To whatever degree we merit our standing with God, we would have reason to boast before God. Yet boasting is excluded. For the one and only God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone. Therefore, let us humbly boast in the Lord and in Him alone. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come before you now. We, we would humbly bow before you. We would acknowledge that there is no good thing in us that apart from you our goodness is nothing, that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before you, that it is all of your grace that there is any good in us whatsoever, that there is any love for you, any desire to honor you and praise you. If there is any, anything good, it is all of your doing and none of our own. Your grace and your grace alone is sufficient to save. And so we come not in any way congratulating ourselves, but we would rather boast in you, the God of such grace, such power, such kindness, such pity, such goodness. And we do, Lord, boast in you as our God and our Savior. And now we would pray the very words that Christ has taught us to pray by saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.